Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Door Creek. If you're a guest, my name's Mark. Good to have you here today. So I've got a smile on my face, but the truth is I've got a heaviness in my heart for all that's going on in our country. And right now, you don't need to hear what I think about it all, and I don't need to hear what you think about it all. We need to continue to hear what God thinks about it all. And so what I'd like to do is just lead us in a time of prayer. Would you join me to pray for our country? God, you and you alone are a refuge, our fortress, our safe place. You are a rock, our rock, a very present help in a day of trouble. And in this day of trouble where things are moving under our feet in our own nation, uh, we cry out to you. The God of all compassion, the Father of all mercies. We thank you, Lord, that you are the God who is the God of all compassion, of all comfort, and we pray that you would comfort all those who mourn, all those who've experienced the sudden loss of a loved one, that you would surround them with your loving care and your arms, and that as only you can, that you would use us for good in their lives, protect them from bitterness, from hatred, from anger. And Lord, you are the Father of all mercies, and we desperately need your mercies to abound in our hearts, from our hearts, in our streets, in our communities, in our cities, across this nation, and Lord, we know across this world. Lord, you have taught us to seek the peace, your peace, the shalom, the well-being, the prospering, the flourishing of our cities and those who live in our cities, that we are to pray for that, knowing that when the city prospers, your kingdom and your people prosper. And so we pray that as there are all kinds of voices around us and within us, our own hearts, that would inform us on how we ought to think and feel and respond to all the turmoil of the day, we pray that you would tune our ears to your voice, that we would be filled with the knowledge of your will, that your spirit would give us wisdom and understanding to know it, that we might do your will and live our lives in a manner that is worthy of your son, Jesus Christ, pleasing you in every way, bearing fruit in every good way, good work. We pray that, Lord. We pray, Father God, that we would be a people who join you in your work of reconciliation, of bringing things that are divided and hostile together again. That's what you have done at the great cost of your son's violent death to make peace with you and to allow us to experience your peace with each other. 
And so, Lord, help your church to shine. And as we go out from this place this week and hit our workplace, catch up with our neighbors about the events of this week, with extended family members and friends on Facebook or wherever it is, may our speech be full of grace. May we be respectful. May we be gentle. May we have your compassion and humility and patience and love and forgiveness as we move your mission forward by the strength of your spirit, for the glory of your name and for the good of our nation reeling right now, needing you right now. We pray these things in Christ's name for his glory. God's people said, amen. Amen. So grab a Bible. We're in Colossians chapter four. We're finishing up the letter today. Verses two through six, Colossians, you can see it at the back end of the Bible. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, first and second Thessalonians. If you need to look at your table of contents, you can find it there. Paul has been catching up with the church in Colossae, a church that is fragile right now, a church that loves Jesus, but a church like all the churches in the New Testament where false teaching has crept in and a false gospel that is tempting them to think that Jesus is great, but I still need some other things in my life moving them towards a legalistic approach, a religious approach where we do things and meet the bar for God's further approval. And so what does he do? But he just gives them Mount Everest. I mean, of all of the New Testament books, all of them which are pointing us to Jesus, Colossians is the peak. This beautiful pinnacle of Christ who shows us in flesh and blood what the invisible God is like. This one in whom all the fullness, not like just a part of it, not just like he's a a shadowy reflection, all of God's fullness in Christ, our beautiful Savior who makes us full, who radically makes us alive spiritually so we can have a relationship with God, so we have a heart after God, and that, that changes us. And so he moves from the beauty of Christ to the beauty of Christ in us. Today, the beauty of Christ through us. And the beauty of Christ in us is he's making us alive and he's transforming us from the old self that was ruled by things, chapter three, verse eight, like anger and malice and slander and all these things that tear people down. to to Christ, his compassion, his humility, his love, his patience, his forgiveness. And he's saying, look, if Christ, the one whom all this world came into being through him, this one who holds it all together, if he is Lord of your life, even as he is Lord over all things, well, then it shows up in the everyday relationships of your marriage, of your family, it shows up at work. And here now he takes it one concentric circle further and he says it actually shows up in how we treat people who don't yet know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And so what Paul's gonna do here is he ends chapter four as he gets us right back to the beauty of Christ's mission and how God's mission moves forward through our prayers, through our credible witness by the grace of God and through our gospel partnerships.
So he starts talking in verses two through six about our prayers and our credible witness. Pick it up in verse two. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too. Pray for what? That God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Christ's mission moves forward through our prayers. That's the first thing he says. So remember, with our spiritual growth plan, we're asking God continually, where do you want me to become more like your son? Help me to be more like Jesus. What specifically do you want me, by your grace, to be focused on? One of the things we also said in our spiritual growth plan, you place people in my life. Who are these people that are far from you right now that you want me to be a part of bringing them closer to you? And have you thought about, so how is it that those people are gonna come to faith in Christ? The first thing he says is, has everything to do with prayer. And what is prayer? It's an act of our complete dependence upon God for all things. I don't pray enough because I think that I can do it or that we can do it. It's a nice thing, but not an essential thing. He says, be devoted to prayer. It's a persistence. It demands an intensity of effort. It is something that we stay at, prayer. Devoted prayer is what we see in verse 12 of this guy who founded the church, Epaphras, who Paul says is one of, um, is one of you, right? He's part of the church, founded the church, first guy to share the gospel with them, a servant of Christ Jesus, sends his greetings, right? Here it is. He's always wrestling in prayer for you. That's devoted prayer. Always wrestling in prayer for you. So what Paul will say in Romans 12, 12, be constant in prayer. He'll say in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing. Pray constantly. If anybody had a pass on prayer, because he's God and can do all things, it's Jesus. But Jesus didn't think prayer was just a nice thing. It was at the heart of his relationship with the Father. And so we read in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 5, verse 16. But Jesus often, not sometimes, once in a while, one time, he often withdrew to lonely places to what? And prayed. 612 of Luke's Gospel. One of those days, Jesus went up to a mountainside to pray until the sun set. Oh, no, that's not what it says. And spent what? The night. Wow. Jesus spent the night praying to God. The writer of Hebrews says, the ascended Christ, who's seated at the right hand of the Father, continues to pray for us today. He always lives to intercede for them, for us, the church, his people. Be devoted. There's three words that mark a prayer life. <coughs> Devotion, watchfulness, thankfulness. Watchfulness. It's like stay at it. Don't fall asleep. Jesus says to his disciples, watch and pray. At the most crucial hour of his life, he takes the disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And he takes Peter, James, and John. He says, you stay here and watch and pray. Pray for me. But they fell asleep. 
when we're watchful, we don't fall asleep in prayer or at prayer. You ever fall asleep in prayer? I have. So I'm like one of those guys that when you hit the pillow, man, I'm out. Praise Jesus. I love that. I feel so bad for you that your mind is still racing. I'm, I'm just out. So Lori and I, you know, occasionally our, our habit is let's, let's, let's just pray for people at the end of the day that, that God's allowed us to interface with. Let's just pray. And man, there's been a lot of times where my sweet wife is praying and I'm out. And I don't know what it is about the word amen, but it wakes me up. <laughs> and then I go, oh, my word. I did. But I'm not telling her because I, I said, amen. <laughs> I worked with this college pastor who would get up at 4 o'clock in the morning. He's this great guy, loved college students, had this unbelievable ministry to college students. We would have staff meeting at, two, at 1 o'clock on Tuesday afternoon. Do you know this, that 1 o'clock is a God-forsaken hour in the day to get anything productive done. Do you agree? Have you ever taken a one o'clock class? I mean, it is so hard. Have you ever, ever had to lead a meeting at one? I, I, you know, I can remember doing counseling at one o'clock, praying earnestly, God, do not let me fall asleep. This person <laughs> is bearing their heart to me. One o'clock is a terrible time. And so what do we do during staff meeting? We would pray. Jerry, who's been up since four, ooh, I was supposed to say his name. You didn't hear that. His name's Larry. <laughs> we start praying, and first thing that would happen is heavy breathing. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. He's about to go. And then he'd break into snoring. And then, then we couldn't take it anymore. We would just smack him, and we'd, we'd go on. It is so easy to fall asleep in prayer. It is so easy to fall asleep at prayer. Man, prayer is just one of those subjects. It raises our tension because we feel guilty. I'm not good at it. It seemingly is inefficient. It seemingly doesn't work. Jesus says it's not a nice thing. It's a necessity. We're to be devoted. Devoted prayer is watchful. We stay at it. We don't fall asleep at it. We're constantly praying. And our prayers are to be always coupled with thanksgiving. And here's why. Because when our prayers have thankfulness in the mix, it's because God is at the center of the prayer. When all that's going on is, I need, I need, I need, guess who's at the center of the prayer? Me, you. Thankfulness centers us on God, who he is, what he does, what he's done in the past, we're thanking for that, who he is in the present so that we can trust him for all that we don't know about this blind curve, all that we don't know of what is gonna happen with what's breaking out that is incredibly hard in my life right now. Praying thankfully focuses me on the goodness of God, his faithfulness in the past and his promises to take care to me through the end. Thankfulness. That's how he starts his prayer, his book in chapter one. Notice thankfulness here, chapter one, verse three. We always thank God the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Turn over chapter two, verse seven. He says that we're to be rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, overflowing with what? Thankfulness. We keep going, 317. We're to be giving thanks to God the Father through him. We're devoted and watchful and thankful. Thanksgiving. And so the first way the Christ mission moves forward, and it's a surprising one because we wouldn't necessarily think that's it, is prayer. It's prayer. 
So there's a second thing that moves the mission of God forward. Before we get there, he mentions two things that we ought to pray for. Do you see them in verses four, three and four? He says, pray for open doors and pray for clarity that I could clearly present the message of the gospel as God opens the door. Opening the door is just a metaphor that God would make a way in, that he'd, he'd open this person up to the good news of God's love for them in Christ. So we get that. And obviously, people have been praying for open doors around here because in the last six or seven weeks, I can think of a dozen to 15 children and adults who've come to faith in Christ right here through the ministries of this church. Is that awesome? Yeah. Like there's been a big party going on in heaven and we rejoice that God would allow us to be part of his mission going forward in us and through us. People are praying for open doors. We're praying for some of our kids, for some of our children, for open doors. Paul says, pray for me that God would give me open doors. So when God's word is taught here, you pray, God, that you open up people's hearts to hear your gracious gospel and that you would help those who are presenting the gospel to get it clear. So if you got on the elevator on the fifth floor and you were riding down to the lobby and your coworker says, I know you're a Christian, I don't really get it, but just in a nutshell, can you give me the essence of the gospel? Are you clear? Are you crystal clear? Could you get it out between the fifth floor and the lobby? Paul says, I, I, I've got an elevator speech for you. 1 Corinthians 15, check it out, verse two. By this gospel you were saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you've believed in vain. For what I received, Paul's saying, I didn't make up the gospel, I received it. Who did he receive it from? He tells us, through a revelation of Jesus Christ, he's received the gospel, I'm passing it on to you as of first importance. Here it is, here's the elevator. Three things, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. The heart of the gospel, Christ died for your sins and mine. Why does he say according to scriptures? Hey, this has been God's plan along. What scriptures is Paul talking about? He's talking about Genesis all the way through Malachi. Or in his Hebrew Bible, Genesis all the way through 2 Chronicles. He's saying the Old Testament has all been pointing forward to this coming Savior who would die a horrendous death on our behalf for our rebellion, for our sin, what separated for us from God. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. What's that about? He really died. Why does that matter? Because the Bible says he was raised from the dead. According to the scriptures, that's how it was always going to be. He didn't faint. This isn't God's plan B. This is the gospel revealed in the scriptures, centered on Christ, his life, his death, and his resurrection. Are we clear? Are we clear? Christ's mission moves forward through our devoted prayer, watchful prayer, thankful prayer. We pray for that. We live for that. There's a wonderful little resource that we have provided for you. It's online. You can find it under the first tab that says, I'm new. There's a little sub-tab that says, Explore Christianity. There's a wonderful little 
presentation. I love this presentation, Two Ways to Live. Not just because I got to meet the author, Philip Jensen, great, great Anglican man who loves Jesus and God's word from Sydney, Australia, uh, but because it takes the storyline of the Bible and you don't have to know anything about the Bible to be able to understand what this presentation of the gospel is all about. And so I, I just appeal, if you aren't clear on how to share the gospel, that you take advantage of something like that. So there's a second way Christ's mission moves forward, and it has everything to do with our credible witness. So what does a credible witness look like? He's gonna point out this. We live wisely, we make the most of every opportunity, and when we're given the opportunity to speak for Jesus, it's a conversation, not a sermon, and the conversation is full of grace, and it's sprinkled with salt to create a thirst for more. It's not sprinkled with grace and full of salt so that people go, ugh, I don't like that. It's living wisely. And when I say wise, do you think of age? Do you think of knowledge? That's not how the Bible works out wisdom. Wisdom has something to do with knowledge. It's our knowledge of God and our knowledge of God's word lived out in everyday life. It's the skill for living rightly before God and with our neighbor. It's applied knowledge, wisdom. Has not, you could be wise biblically and be 13, and you could be 83 and very foolish, all right? He says live wisely. He's already been talking about what does it look like to live wisely. He said, husbands, love your wives. Don't be harsh with them. That's part of wise living. That, that's part of living a life that others notice so that as we share the gospel, how we live our lives matches up to the beauty of our Savior and the good news about him. How I treat my wife, how I respond to my husband, how I treat the kids, how I respond to mom and dad, how I uh, treat those who work for me, those I work for. That's all about living wisely as he's been talking about that in 3.18 to 4.1. Living wisely has everything to do with what he said back in 3.8. Go back to 3.8. Getting rid of things like anger. I'm not living wisely. There's nothing of Christ in me when I'm angry and rage controls me and malice and slander and filthy language. Ah, but 12, a wise life is clothed, is surrounded, is growing in Christ's compassion, his kindness, his humility, his gentleness, his patience, his forgiveness, his love. Wise living, wise living. If we're living wisely, then we're positioned to make the most of every opportunity. Now, my mom, I don't know if she had the gift of evangelism. Maybe she did. But she had a bold witness. And sometimes I was a little embarrassed by it. But here's the deal. If there's like a repair person who came into our house, I could like set the timer and go, by five minutes, she's talking to this guy about Jesus. It's gonna happen. It is gonna, oh, there it is. It happened. <laughs> I mean, she just, she was always making a beeline to Jesus. Well, listen, there, there's ways we make beelines to Jesus that start long before we open our mouths. And that's the stuff we really need to be attentive to in the ongoing relationships. But sometimes there's just this happenstance 
we just cross paths with someone and we're not gonna have an opportunity to, to live the gospel over time. We, we, we're gonna make the most of the opportunity that God presents to us. And so we seize the day. And it has to do with timing and it has to do with where that person's at. And the spirit in us just nudging us through that, is this an open door for me to share? And as that door opens and we're prompted to share about the good news and the hope that is in us, then we remember we're having a conversation. Uh, Some of us, like we turned into a preacher. I think my mom kind of turned into the preacher. You know, she just went off on Jesus and was telling him all about Jesus and her love for Christ. And so he didn't say, and let your preaching always be full of grace. Let your conversations. What is a conversation? Like we're not having one right now. I want this to be a presentation that feels conversational, that's engaged, but it's not a conversation, is it? A conversation is two ways. A conversation requires us to listen. A a conversation is marked, Peter says, by gentleness and respect as we talk to people about the hope that is in us. A conversation is not just sharing the truths, but it's, it's raised, one of the beautiful things about the conversations of Christ, it's full of questions. Questions are so disarming. Statements are like, whoa. Preaching is like, dude, relax. And when we get into preacher mode and they call us a Jesus freak and a Bible thumper, well, it's probably because we misread the verse and we are full of salt because we're trying to preserve the world instead of sprinkled with salt that is trying to create thirst. And so I ask myself, so when I get into the conversation, is there so much grace in my life? Is there a seasoning of salt that, that keeps the conversation going where they want more? Or is it like a conversation stopper? Because man, I just came out like a house of fire and they don't know what to do. And that was uncomfortable. And I don't hope, hope we never go there again. Or they actually tell me, Don't ever bring that up again. I don't like it when you talk to me about these things. So this is really powerful. Wise living is making the most of every opportunity. And that has our conversations full. So if we're full of grace, that means every word that comes out of my mouth is coded in grace. That's the goodness of God, the beauty of Christ that they're seeing in us. That's how we're living, by God's grace. There's a third thing, and that has to do with our partnerships. So I think this is a really a powerful way that he ends the letter written to a church that he never got to. Remember, it's that guy Epaphras who first told him about Christ. This, is, this isn't a church that Paul plants, right? Paphras tells him about Christ. And yet you start, just look through verse seven and following. So you got Tychicus, you got Onesimus in verse nine, you got Aristarchus in verse 10, you got a name, guy named Mark and Barnabas in verse 10, Jesus also called Justice, verse 11, Epaphras in 12. You've got Dr. Luke, his good friend, Demas, ascending greetings. You got Nympha, who hosts the church in Laodicea, and then you got Archippus. You got all these names. What's he doing? It's not just final greetings. It's reminding us that God's mission moves forward through gospel partnerships. So 
Well, here's what we know about gospel partnerships. They're very diverse. So there's men and women. There's young and old in the church. There's Jew and Gentile. There's a guy named Onesimus who's a slave. And there's all kinds of people who aren't slaves. It's very diverse. There's people from this city, Colossae from that city, Laodicea from that city back there, Hierapolis. It's diverse. Gospel partnerships are made up of different people. The differences that typically divide us in culture are united in Christ, right? So notice verses seven through nine. Gospel partnerships have a mutual care for each other. Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He's a dear brother, faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord. I'm sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstance, because they really care about Paul, who's in prison, and that he may encourage your hearts. He's coming with an SMS. Our faithful and dear brother, who's one of you, they will tell you everything that is happening here. There's this mutual care. Verse 10, there's this mutuality in in participating in each other's sufferings. So in verse 10, he says, my fellow prisoner Archippus sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You've received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. We share in each other's sufferings. And so as we do ministry with other people, we understand that we're going through hard things. One of the things I love about Door Creek is we really do believe in the grace of God. We really aren't about pursuing religion and having this performance and this uh, persona about us that we have it all together. We know we don't. We're always looking to Jesus. And so I, I hope you sense that, that we can be real with each other because of what God has done for us in Christ. But here's the deal. When we get in our life groups and we start sharing about the hard things in our life, they're really hard. But every one of us have even another level of hard things that for actually even some good reasons, we just can't go there right now. Or maybe we can never go there. And and it's just good to enter into the hard things. So, you know, I'm just thinking about what's going on in our country. If you're in law enforcement, I, I can only imagine the hard things that you're going through, the, the fear that you might feel, the anxiety. If you have a son or a daughter or a husband or a wife who's in law, I, I, we, we want to enter into that. At the same time, I want to say to you, you're raising a young black man? Man, I want to enter into your suffering and your fears. We do that. The mutuality of love and concern shows up as we share together. The Bible says when one suffers, we all suffer. When one rejoices, we all rejoice. And so there's a mutuality even in the sufferings. Paul says in verse 18, hey, don't forget, I'm in chains for this gospel. Because it's easy to forget, isn't it? It's so easy for... So just let me just say, forgive me when you've gone through something hard and I see you on the weekend and I forget. It's just easy to forget it. But but there's a mutuality of suffering. And there he is, Archippus. He's right there with Paul. Uh, Not Archippus, Aristarchus, with Paul in prison. And then, I don't want us to miss the mention of Mark, who He says, you make sure you welcome him. Why would he say that? Because there was a time when Paul didn't welcome him. Here's the story of John Mark, Barnabas' cousin. When Peter's put in prison, 
back in the book of Acts, there's a prayer meeting that's going on at John Mark's family's house. John Mark is Barnabas' cousin. Barnabas is one of the first guys that connects the newly converted Saul, now Paul, this first great missionary of the church, to the disciples, and he goes with them, Acts chapter 13, on the very first missionary journey, and he says to Paul, hey, I love Jesus, I wanna go with you, and why not we bring my cousin John Mark who wants to go? They get to a place called Pamphylia, Acts chapter 15, and he leaves. This is what is written about John Mark in Acts 15. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them, but Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia. So now we're talking about the mission two, and, and Barnabas saying, I'm ready to go too, and you know what? Mark's on with us this time. And what, is, what, what does it say happened? After he deserted them in Pamphylia and did not continue with them in the work, they had such a sharp disagreement over John Mark that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, and Paul went back to visit those churches. And now we see that John Mark is in prison with Paul. He's welcome there. And he wants them to know he's welcome there. This is is really powerful. Gospel partnerships exude grace. I don't know if you know this, but there's two fundamental reasons why people leave the mission field. They feel called to that place. They spent a lot of time raising money. They, they, they're giving their life to go work in a hard place. There's two reasons they come back. One is health, their health or a child's health. The second, and this is repeated time and time again, there is a relational falling out. One of the things that's hard about ministry is us. See, because I'm not all Jesus yet because he's still working on me, there's rough edges. And we do ministry together. You just talk to the staff. There's stuff that's not Jesus yet in me that rubs up against them, and it's hard. It's really hard really hard and there was something about this young John Mark all we know is that he left Paul says it wasn't just a leaving he left us high and dry he deserted me but there was more grace there was grace for it wasn't there at the beginning of journey two but it's here now, and that's a beautiful thing. Paul growing in grace and extending grace. Gospel partnerships extend grace to each other when we find out what we already know. We're not Jesus yet. We're just a bunch of knuckleheads that are graciously stumbling and falling, trying to make a way with Jesus. Grace, grace, grace. It moves forward through prayer, right? Verses 12 and 13, Epaphras, who is wrestling in prayer that they may stand firm, fully assured in the will of God, growing in maturity. These gospel partnerships forge friendships like the one he has with Dr. Luke in verse 14. And these gospel partnerships grow 
They grow the work of Christ. So he's not just writing this letter to the church at Colossae. He says, hey, when you're done, make sure you get to Laodicea and they're gonna send their letter back to you. And don't forget about Hierapolis and the church over there. Make sure it gets, what's happening? The gospel like that mustard seed, like Jesus said, the kingdom of God is always expanding. Gospel partnerships, they just have a part of expanding the ministry and the mission of Christ. And then let me point out one other verse, verse 17. I love it. And when I was reading this verse up in Door County this past month, wow, it was like God was saying it just to me. And that's actually how we had to read the word. So the Bible tells us in Hebrews 4, the Bible is active and it's a living word. So God is this God, from the very beginning, we find out that he's a talking God and he speaks this universe and his word is powerful. And this is a living word. And when we're in the word, God is talking to us. Prayer is us talking back to God. And it was like God was just saying it to me, what he said to Archippus through Paul. See to it, Archippus, that you complete the ministry you've received in the Lord. Here's what we know about Archippus. He shows up in Philemon, Verse two, he's called a fellow soldier. He's listed right after Philemon and very likely Philemon's wife, Aphia. And most scholars believe this is Philemon's son, who Paul describes in Philemon as a soldier. And apparently, as we put two and two together, the soldier has gotten beat up and maybe wounded. And maybe he's ready to give up. Is that where you were at? Like, it's, it's so hard right now, being a Christ follower. You feel like your prayers aren't, aren't getting through the ceiling. You feel like I'm trying to, 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 to live a credible life in front of my family, in front of my friends, at, at work, and it's just like all that's coming back is mockery and resentment and cynicism, and, and, and you feel like I, I've been serving God, like, a lot, earnestly and like there's this hard stuff in my life and it's not going away and, and I'm, just, I'm, I'm just feeling ready to quit. And Paul says, he calls him out, Archippus. Archippus, finish the job God's called you to do. He comes around him to encourage him to finish the race. It made me think of the wonderful story that comes out of the 1992 uh, Barcelona Olympics. It was August the 3rd. It was the semifinals for the 400-meter race. There was a Brit. His name was Derek Redman, who was locked into the blocks, and when the gun went off, he shot off like a cannon, right? And he's just trucking down that track, and he's doing great. And he gets to the 100-meter mark, and all of a sudden, he blows out his hamstring. His hand goes back to the back of his hamstring, and he falls to the ground, and he's crushed, not from the searing pain of tearing that huge, huge part of our body off the bone, but, but for what had happened, because in 1988, seconds before his heat in the 400, his Achilles goes out, and he's had five surgeries since 88, and he's back. He's one race away from running for gold. And he gets 100 meters down the track and he blows it out and he's crushed and he's hitting the track and he's weeping and the track officials come to kind of help him and he, and he waves him off and he gets up and he starts hopping 
and he's crying and he's in intense pain. And then all of a sudden, there's this big guy who comes out of the stands, Jim Redman, his dad, in his Nike cap and his T-shirt and his shorts, and he runs through security and he runs to his son's side, letting these track officials know, this is my son, I got him. And he puts his arm around him and his son over his dad's strong shoulders and, and he helps him cross the finish line. And, the, and, and the, it was just so much emotion. I mean, so much emotion right there. You can watch the video. It's so moving. So much emotion in the stands. Uh, that's what a dad would do, right? He didn't stay in the stands and, and pray for his son. He got right down there on the track. And that's what I know about gospel ministry. We're family. And when, when something like that, when we get injured, when we're ready to drop out of the race, when, when we, all we can do is like hop our way down the track. We come around our brothers and sisters. We don't go, man, what did you do? You really messed up. We go, man, I love you, and hang on, hang on. I'm gonna help you cross that finish line. So here's some things about ministry that we don't wanna miss. Ministry, we know, was home-centered. The church at Laodicea met in Nympha's house. Don't you love that? This godly woman, when they started hearing about the gospel, they said, where should we meet? She said, I got room, meet in my house. Do you realize the church didn't start meeting in buildings till the third century? So the first two centuries of Christianity, they're meeting in homes. Jesus' ministry so often is in a home around a table. Let's not miss that. The home and the church go together. The home and God's mission go together, not just what's happening with our marriages and with our family, but it is a base of ministry. Your home, your apartment, your dorm room, a base of ministry. Let's not miss that ministry is shared. Epaphras started the church. Luke's there. Barnabas was at his side. Archicus, Aristarchus, all these people, they're there. Ministry is shared. It's not to, you've got a seat. You realize this, you didn't buy this seat, did you? You don't, you don't have a ticket stub that says you're in section B, row three and four, Mike, did it, right? You didn't get that. But, but sometimes that's how we act in this room, in a church. We think, well, we we're paying for this. And maybe you actually did pay for it on your way in, you think. And it turns you into what? A spectator. The mission of God moves forward not through these professional people like Paul and the rest of them say, get them, Paul, we're praying for the open doors. No, they're opening doors by their wise living. They're not just praying that he'd get the message clear, that they'd get it clear. They're devoted to prayer. They're opening up their homes. They're entering each other's sufferings. They're coming alongside because God's mission moves forward through his church and we all have a different part to play. And when you say, you don't, you don't need me, well, let me tell you what, there's 1,500 ministry positions that move the mission of this church forward over the course of a year. We do. And when you're not part of the mission, man, we're missing out, you're missing out. Because he's uniquely gifted you. If you put your faith in Christ, his spirit is in you, you have tools, gifts that make us more like Christ and help us advance the cause of Christ. You're missing out, we're missing out. I encourage you 
to get connected to God's mission in this place so that together we can move it forward. Let me say one other implication of this text, and that is that ministry is hard. Great joys. People come to faith. People growing to be more like Jesus. Great joys. But man, discouraging. Some of you are in ministries. It's hard. It's discouraging. Is anything happening here? Are these kids listening? What's going on here? I mean, I remember leading small groups of junior high boys going, what is happening here? (laughs) Going, nothing. (laughs) He mentions Demas. I don't know if you noticed that. I don't know if you know anything about Demas. All we know is at the end of his life, 2 Timothy 4.10, Paul says this, Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. It's easy to quit. It's hard. There's a reason people say if it weren't for the people, ministry would be a great gig. It's hard. There's a target on our back if we want to advance the cause of Christ. There is an enemy who would steal and kill and destroy. If you haven't caught up with that, connect that truth to all that's gone on this past week. Stealing, killing, destroying, dividing. You, you, you want your marriage to be all about Jesus and pointing people to Jesus? You want your family? You, you want your testimony at work? Well, expect hard. God's mission moves through suffering and it's hard and it's easy to forget it. Remember my chains. So what do we do with the teaching? There's a couple things we could do. We just let it just pummel us and go, I really stink at prayer. I've quit at prayer. I'm an abysmal failure and just wallow in it. And here's what the Bible says. When God's word comes and instructs us, we clearly do this. We just repent. What do we do? Say, God, I've given up. I've fallen asleep. I'm not thankful. I'm all about me. It's not about you. And my prayer life is a wreck. I'm just telling you what you already know. But in saying that, we receive forgiveness. We repent of that, and we say, God, strengthen me to be devoted to prayer. In the meantime, we thank Jesus that he prays for us when we don't pray. Like tonight. He was praying for us when we were sleeping. And we thank him. When we go, credible witness, I don't know. I think this week I blew it. Like, I like major blew it. I lost it. Or that email I wrote, oh my word, it's blowing up the office. Or that conversation I had with my stepchild. Or that conversation I had with my daughter-in-law. Oh, I think I just blew it up. My sister, oh man. What do we do? We just, we, we repent, we confess. God, help me. Help me this week. I need more of you. What do we do if we go, well, man, I've been so hurt. I I don't want to work with anybody else. I'll just do it. I'm just going to do, it's just going to be me and God. It's just a little, God, I I just confess that I'm being ruled by fear and hurt. And and I'm just going to tell you that. So we, so we, we do that. And we just, we go back to Christ. We go back to Christ. Lord, help me pray. Lord, help me live like you, Lord. Help me be a great partner in ministry for you. Here's what I know. The beauty of Christ is not just seen in Christ. It's seen in his church. And when it's seen in his church, it transforms other people's lives. And here's what I know. Jesus is praying for you and me to be filled with the knowledge of God's will. 
with all the wisdom and understanding that only the Holy Spirit can give so that we may live lives that are worthy of Jesus Christ our Lord, pleasing him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that we could have great endurance and patience right now when it's really, really hard and that we would be constantly giving joyful thanks to the Father who's qualified us not our works, not our pedigree, not our record. He's qualified us to a share in the inheritance of his holy people who've been set apart for a relationship with God. No longer in the kingdom of darkness, but an inheritance and an heir in the kingdom of light. Praise God. Let's pray. So we just confess that we aren't a people of prayer. We confess that our witness is muddy and people are getting two different views of who you are and we confess we blow up partnerships more than we nurture them and we just thank you for your grace and your mercy thanks that you are the perfect example that we point to that you pray for us even when we just keep the phone off the hook thank you that you want to still extend your grace and mercy to us to include us in your partnership and give us eyes to see your beauty, grace to live that out so that others would be transformed by the beauty of Christ in your gospel. In Christ's name we pray for his honor and glory, the good of the world, amen.